I mean, when we're in addiction and when we're in recovery, we can be so judgmental of ourselves. We're so cruel to ourselves and to others as well, but particularly to ourselves. So don't judge yourself harshly. Don't, you know, just, just accept what has happened and what you are now. And don't judge yourself for that. You just are where you are and that's okay. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast. And today, we have Esther Nagel joining us on the show. Esther spent years of her life wagering war on herself and blaming the world for her unhappiness, numbing her pain and hiding in alcohol, drugs, loud music, and other self-destructive tendencies. Her life was a constant battle between the identity she had created for herself and the real Esther that she had occasional glimpses of, a happy, relaxed, joyful person full of love and peace. Esther's battle started to end the day she realized she was falling apart until a long-dreamed-of yoga teacher training course showed her that there was a different way she could live, and she stepped gleefully into a life of happiness, healing, and recovery. Since October of 2014, after 20 years of addiction, Esther now uses her experiences and wisdom to help others through writing, speaking, and teaching. Join us now as Esther takes us through her unbelievable battle with addiction and her inspiring journey into recovery. But before we dive into Esther's story, it's time to read some of the iTunes reviews. And the first one is from Journalist JK. Love this show. O does a great job with this podcast. First of all, he has a strong, deep, lovely voice for radio. Thank you. I love his laugh. It's genuine and cute and adds a bit of humor to what could be a serious and boring podcast. Lastly, he keeps it real with real people telling real stories of their downfalls, embarrassing moments, and also their uplifting stories. I listen to this podcast while doing an afternoon walk, and I'm always amazed at new insights by the people's stories. Thanks for sharing. Wow. Journalist JK, thank you so much. I love reading posts like this. It helps me so much because I know that what I'm doing is what God intended I connect so well with my guests, and more importantly, like you say, real stories by real people. No bullshit. I get messages all the time from people that, because of where they live and the limited amount of meetings they have available to them, that this podcast has been their pipeline to recovery. I love producing the Share Podcast, and I plan to do this as long as I possibly can. And speaking of which, I can't believe the overwhelming amount of support that's come over the last three weeks in donations. Since I changed the intro of the podcast, I've been getting new and regular donations every single week, which again tells me that you guys are loving this, needing this, and see the value in the Share podcast the way I do and so many do. Again, like I said, five bucks a month in some places not even enough to get you a Starbucks, especially if you get one of those fancy seasonal drinks. But here, it's a game changer. As a matter of fact, if 100 of you were to deposit just $5 a month, the show would be fully self-supporting. So again, thank you so much for all of you that have made donations. Your donation makes a difference. So let's read one more review and get on to Esther's story. This one is from Mama Smurf. I like this. Look at this one. Mama Smurf 218. Extremely inspirational podcast. I love listening to the guest speaker's path to recovery. O's voice is made for podcasts and his passion is evident for what he does. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mama Smurf. And yes, you're absolutely right. I absolutely love producing the Share Podcast. I'm passionate about recovery. 
and we absolutely cannot do this alone. We have to stick together. So now let's dive into Esther's story. But first, if you would like to know the best way to show your support for the Share Podcast, here are a few ways you can help. First, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. And there you can sign up for our free newsletter, which will let you know every time a new episode of the Share Podcast comes out. You can leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. If you would like to know other places that you can listen to the Share Podcast, you can listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. If you would like to donate to the Share Podcast, you can do so via PayPal, or you can support us on Patreon. We have a thriving Facebook group that grows daily and has massive participation. Again, it's a private group. So if you would like to discuss recovery, share your experience, strength, and hope, help others, or lean on others for support, be sure to join the Facebook private group. And all of this information can be found on the website. So go to the website, and there you will find all the information that you need to help support the show. So now a quick message from our sponsors and on to the show. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. Hey, Esther, thanks for joining us. Hey, oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really good, thank you. Really, really good. It's been a good day. Excellent. I love it. All right. So today, folks, we have Esther Nagel joining us on the Share podcast. And Esther is the founder of Balance and Breathe, recovery support through yoga. Esther spent most of her adult life living with addiction and mental illness and has come out the other side older, wiser, happier, and free. She is also the author of Bent Back Into Shape, Beating Addiction Through Yoga. So does that sound about right, Esther? Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Okay, great. So let's dive right in. So first, Esther, just take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery. Well, I've got a bit of a an, an, a routineless life in an awful lot of ways. I'm um, I'm a, I'm a, an unschooling, a home educating single mum, and my son goes to his father on very on on erratic days we're on a shift pattern with my with his with his father so i don't have normal routine days but there are certain routines that i like to have every day so i do try and make sure that i fit in my regular routines um i like to get up early in the morning and do some yoga first thing in the morning so that might be a a, that will normally involve um, some sitting quietly so meditating and doing some exercises to release all the tension from my body that i've accumulated over the night some stretching maybe um 
I, I try to do about six or to ten rounds of Surya Namaskar as well to give myself a bit of aerobic exercise and then a relaxation at the end. So that's about an hour normally most mornings of yoga that I try and make sure I do. I don't always manage it because, as you can imagine, life as a as a, a single mum, a single um, self-employed woman, writer, it gets a little bit unpredictable at times and I don't always manage it. But I know that life works a lot better when I get my morning yoga done. Um, I tend to not function quite so well when I don't. So it is very important. It is right. a very important part of my day. Um, so then beyond that, it's, um, you know, if my son is with me, I will then get hit, you know, be ready for him when he wakes up. I try and get my business stuff done before he gets up in the morning so that I can then be with him and we like to go out he's very into Pokemon and Minecraft <laughs> so we go walking around chasing <laughs> Pokemon and doing Minecraft and I like going for walks up the mountain a lot so I try and get him to do that with me as much as I can um and so yeah we just we just do is because we're unschooling we have no structure with our home education either so it's very much like what shall we learn about today so life is very flexible and fluid which is it suits me I, I I'm not very good with structure and routine too much so um the fluidity of my main life is is fine as long as I've got the structure and routine of my yoga practice in the morning and I like to be in bed by nine ten o'clock at the latest in the evening to make sure that I can get up in the morning and have the energy for the day so I can have my eight hours of sleep every night because that is really important to me. I, I need I need plenty of sleep. I know now that I need a lot of sleep, which is something I didn't used to get when I was drinking. <laughs> right. Was there something in particular that brought you to the realization that you were not sleeping enough or there was, was, there, was there something that happened that prompted you to investigate what it was and then it was a sleeping or is it just that in general you need to get your sleep? Well, I've, I've, since I, since I stopped drinking, I mean, I, I stopped drinking and I, I obviously I'll talk more about this later on, but, um, since I stopped drinking, I, I've, my life has changed completely. And I started wanting to get up earlier in the morning so that I could get my yoga practice done when I was doing my training, because we had quite a, an intense um, schedule that we had to do every day of, of yoga practices that we had to do every day as part of the training. And I realized very quickly that if I didn't do this yoga practice in the morning, it probably wasn't going to get done because it was too hard to fit it in at any other time in my day. So I started trying to get up early and realized really quickly, really, really quickly that I actually need a lot of sleep. I, I thought I could go by get by on very little sleep because when I was drinking I was getting by on very little sleep but of course my days were fueled by caffeine and chocolate and junk food then and I was also trying to cut all those things out of my diet so I wasn't getting myself through the day using artificial stimulants really to get me through the day and so it was just a real realization that actually if I want to do this getting up early in the morning I have to be in bed early. Um, for a little while, I thought, oh, seven hours. You know, the, there's that idea that you, everyone needs seven hours. So I was trying for seven hours. But I was still tired in the morning when I was waking up. So then I realized, because I, I did a podcast, I did a webinar myself recently about sleep. So I've done quite a lot of research around sleep recently. 
and realize that the seven hours is sort of like the minimum of what most people need rather than what you should be aiming for. And so I started trying then with eight hours and I've realized that eight hours is more my number. So I, as long, I need to try and get eight hours sleep every night. So it's been a, a combination of experimenting now and just the, the, the drastic lifestyle change that I went through as part of my recovery and teacher training. Wow. I, I And that's the reason why I asked, because I have had, I find that certain aspects of my life, um, whether it's, you know, being able to get to the gym or feeling vitalized or, or revitalized when I wake up in the morning, as opposed to, you know, waking up and still feeling tired. Right. And so mm. I usually, I'm usually up late. Right. I, you know, I just, that's just my, my thing. I like to be up late watching miniseries and things of that nature. So I'll get like six, seven hours of sleep. And, uh, you know, my wife's constantly telling me, you got to get more sleep. You got to get more sleep. So it, 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 when you said that, it was like, huh, let me ask. (laughs) (laughs) So there is something to that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it does vary hugely. The, the, you know, and if you're not getting enough sleep, then everything else, the knock on effect of not getting enough sleep on your short term health and on your long term health are really quite serious. You know, it, it is a big it is a big factor in our health and well-being. Sleep is really important to us. Um, you might be interested in watching my webinar. I'll send you the link. <laughs> yes, actually, I would. Yes, absolutely. No, it's 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 always good to, you know, be up on the you know the latest trends and you know information that's out there. It's a lot easier for me to digest it, you know, in a dose or in a video than it is for me to read about it. So yeah, I, I'd much be more interested in that. Yeah, well, I spent I spent quite a long time reading different things. There, I mean, there is a lot of research out there about sleep, um, but you know, you have to go hunting through lots and lots of stuff to get to it. So, yeah, I'll um, I'll send you that link, and maybe I'll share it in the um, Facebook group as well, because I'm sure if you were interested in it, then other people might be as well. Absolutely, yes, great idea, great. Yeah, idea. will too. I will. Um, now, being someone that I always like to ask this question, in, in case it's it's a little bit more involved, or if there's something different then you already discussed your morning meditation but I always like to ask how do you maintain your spiritual condition on a daily basis um, is there any more anything more expansive you want to go into that um, well again it, it, <laughs> it's it's definitely it's it's the base the basis of it is in yoga but beyond that as well it's nature I I live um, I live surrounded by mountains and I love to walk in in the trees and I walk up the mountains and I love to be on top of the mountains looking at the view and being really connected to nature that way and I love to be at the sea Um I, I'm quite new to the idea of being spiritual, and that's that's something that's only come through yoga. But I mean, yoga is about the the whole point of yoga is about connection to our spiritual self and yes. connection to the divine. And so, <coughs> excuse me. Um, Mainly it comes through my yoga practice and my reading and, you know, my self-study and just being conscious all the time that. It's not just about me, as in Esther Nagel, this person, this this entity in this body right now, that there is so much more to me than just this life that I'm living now. Um, I feel like I understand my soul a lot better now. 
And that has come through my stu- my self-study. So doing that, I still do that quite a lot, not quite as intensely as I did when I was doing my training, but I'm constantly kind of looking at myself and working out myself so I get a better idea of me so that I can then connect to my higher self more there's so many channels, really. There is a, a multitude of channels as far as I'm concerned. Uh, there's thousands of, of religions and, you know, there's so many cultural differences between, you know, everyone in the world. So connecting with the divine, connecting with a higher power, connecting with God or connecting with whatever entity that you feel comfortable connecting with, there is something, there is something greater out there. I think that many of us will agree that that is the case. Connecting to it and identifying it is a purely individual thing, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Yeah, it is. And actually, I mean, through as a result of of the sort of self-study that I've done, and I, I talk about this in my book, that I think that one of the biggest sources of my um, my addiction and my my problems is that, that I had as I was growing up one of them, one of the big reasons for it was that at about the age of 12, I lost my faith in the God that I'd been brought up with. Mm, and it was, yeah. um, I mean, I can still remember the conversation I had with the, pre- with the, with the, the priest that, that when this conversation happened, I just felt the, the floor of my belief falling from under me. And I didn't replace that with anything um, apart from rock and roll and drinking years later and casual sex and all these kind of destructive things that did my soul no good whatsoever. And when I started going to my yoga teacher training, I suddenly had an outlet. I, I had a vocabulary to be able to talk about this and to be able to see that actually that lack of connection, and I think that one of the reasons why yoga is so powerful for recovery and certainly why it was so powerful for me is because it did give me that relationship to to be able to have a relationship with something bigger than me without having to give it a name and without having to fit it into somebody else's system. Because I, 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 if I was going to become religious in any way it would probably be hinduism or buddhism rather yeah. than the western faith <laughs> i've always been more drawn to those um but i think that just having this knowledge that i can talk about spirituality and i can think about spirituality and i can recognize my own spirituality now without needing to say i am a fill in the appropriate religion name there <laughs> i could not agree with you more yes there is a there's religious stigma and there is the dogmatic approach to it that you know people crave identification where there is no need to you don't need to identify yeah. with any religion to be spiritual to connect with a higher power so this is where i was going with that one there's a great there's a great quote i saw i had it um i printed out a picture of it um and i had it on my bedroom wall for a while that says religion is agreement between a group of people about what god is whereas spirituality is a one-on-one relationship with god and i yes. thought that was beautiful that you know yes. it's, like you said it doesn't matter what religion you follow or if you follow a religion at all it's about that relationship with whatever you perceive your higher power to be and for me it's very much it's about what is in me and it's about connecting with my inner wisdom and it's about being in nature and seeing the beauty of creation everything that humans can create and everything that nature creates is also amazing yes that that can humble me and make me absolutely lose my 
power of speech because there is so much beauty in the world and that is spirituality well we could we could spend a whole lot of time talking about that yes i think we covered it but (laughs) so let's let's get back into the uh drinking and drugging so now you're about to celebrate some clean time so what is your clean date and how much time do you have so it's been nearly two years. I'm three days away from my two-year anniversary or my soberversary, as I find myself writing it all the time. So it was um, October the 12th, 2014, that I I woke up with my last ever hangover. <laughs> oh, man, that's fantastic. So we're looking at 10, 11, so the 13th, right? Yeah, it's Wednesday. Okay, that's fantastic. So congratu- early congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> By the time people listen to this interview, you'll be about uh, two years and two months. <laughs> that's, usually the, that's usually the timeline. Okay, so I think you're all warmed up here. So I want you to tell us your story, Esther. The battle you had against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and then finally your journey into recovery up until today, where we'll discuss more about your book that you wrote and your website. Okay. All right, then. Thank you very much. So I, 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 I sort of made some notes about this earlier on. And one of the things that I found hardest was working out at which point in my life to start with, with telling my story. Because I think one of the things that I very much learned about my addiction is it started a long time before I drank my first drink. Um, I've done a lot of self-study over the last couple of years, as I've already mentioned, as a result of my yoga practice, looking at myself really quite in depth and trying to work out where certain patterns of behavior started. I was very, when I, when I, when I was growing up, I, I felt very, um, very lacking in self-esteem. I didn't really feel like I belonged anywhere. I didn't feel like I fitted in with my peer group, with anybody, with my local community, and sometimes not even in my family. And recently, as a result of reading Gabo Mate's incredible um, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, I realized that, oh, it's a beautiful book. It's amazing. I I could talk for that about that for the entire time of this podcast. (laughs) My copy is littered with notes. It's it's incredible. Um, But I realized as a result of that, that actually my stress and anxiety seemed to, I think, start when I was 23 months old and my parents presented me with a little brother. And I think, I think that little girl Esther, who didn't have a clue that mum could still love her might have thought that now mum doesn't love me anymore because now she's got this new baby and she can't love me anymore because she's got this little baby to love. Now, I don't know because obviously I can't actually go back into my head when I was 23 months old and find out what I actually thought. And I wouldn't have had the vocabulary to know that. But that explains to me the way that I grew up feeling because there isn't really any direct evidence in what I remember from my childhood for the way I felt. But I felt the way I, I did feel that I was inferior to most people around me, which was not a very nice way to grow up. So I, I went through my entire childhood, my teens, feeling like I stuck out. I, I had a different accent from everyone around me. I grew up differently and I felt really, really like I didn't belong. I didn't even feel like I belonged in myself. I didn't really connect with an awful lot. As I've already mentioned, at 12, I lost my belief in God, which was quite a, a, 
a bolt out of the blue. And I couldn't even, t- I couldn't talk about that with my parents. Um, I think my mum learned about that when she read about it in my book uh, a few months ago. So I didn't really feel like I could talk about any of these issues because I didn't even realize that they were issues. And that, I think, is that's a pattern that has followed me through the rest of my life, that having lots of problems, not really recognizing that they're problems because it just feels normal. That's just the way it's always been. So I didn't know there was anything I needed to talk about. And when I was about 18, I developed bulimia. And Mm. uh, this bulimia was I mean I was I was stealing laxatives from and actually Penny was it Penny somebody on your podcast I think it might have been Penny it was definitely oh, Penny it was she definitely Penny yes she got arrested for stealing laxatives didn't she <laughs> yeah. and I identified with her so much because I used to do it because I knew and probably for the same reason that she did it I knew that what I was doing was wrong I knew right. that I shouldn't be needing a new packet of laxatives every two days. I knew that it was wrong, but I couldn't stop myself doing it. Um, and when this bulimia was ident- identified by my family, I wasn't really treated. I was just kind of, it was kind of bullied out of me. It was um, it was just pushed out of me. And I was basically told I had to start eating again, which right. I did. Um, but then it wasn't very long after that that I discovered the amazing anesthetizing power of alcohol. So I think that what I did there was shift from one self-destructive addiction to another and another that was actually more socially acceptable because the drinking culture in the UK particularly is is very strong. You know, drinking is perfectly acceptable. Getting very drunk is perfectly acceptable in the social circles that I was in. Um I met at around about the same time, I met a group of people who were all around my age. They'd gone to a different school than me. They didn't know me um, until we met in a pub one night. And they were all also kind of misfits. They were all slightly on the edge of society like I felt. And as soon as I met these people, I felt like I was with friends. I felt like I'd found my tribe. I felt like I felt like I belonged at last. I found some group of people that I could really be me with and they were wonderful people I had really good times with them but and where this started a slippery slope for me was drinking and taking drugs recreationally were completely normal in this group you know we did on a regular basis we would all go out get completely wasted take a load of drugs drink a load of booze And that was how we had fun together. (laughs) And it started, you know, I then began to associate, whereas I I realized when I first drank at age 16, I knew it made me feel a bit more happy and a bit confident. But at 19, I discovered that it actually gave me a tribe. It gave me my community. (laughs) Yeah, of course. And yeah, that was very powerful when you're, especially when you're a 19 year old with no self-esteem and doesn't really (laughs) like yourself and doesn't feel like she's got any friends. That was very powerful. Um, At the age of 20, my life started to fall apart. I made a really spectacularly terrible decision, which kind of ripped a hole in my life. And I was left feeling I mean, I hated myself completely. I was convinced that the rest of the world hated me. Um, I don't want to go into detail because it is somebody else's life story, not just mine. So I don't want to go into details about it. But it was a a horrible thing that I did. I did something that I regretted for the rest of my life. Um, But it gave me, it left me with this need to escape that I hadn't had before. And 
because I'd already knew that drinking gave me the ability to pass out, gave me the ability to feel differently than I was to pretend I had um, more positive emotions than I had, I threw myself headfirst into um, drinking. And I would drink to hide. I would drink to give myself to actually give myself the ability to leave my house, to be able to speak to other people, because I was so sure that the rest of the world felt as bad about me as I did, that I thought that nobody would like me. And um, I needed the alcohol to, to get through most my most evenings. And that carried on just getting worse. There was a real downward spiral in my behavior, my my dependence on alcohol. I was taking a lot of um, speed, a lot of acid. I was smoking weed pretty much every day, um, hanging around with people whose drinking and drug use was just was worse than mine. So I could justify my behavior yes. all the time. And I could mm. always find somebody that would get wasted with me as well so I never needed to drink or smoke on my own because I could always persuade somebody else to come along and join me and they were very often people doing the same to me I think I was living in a bed sit at this point and everyone I think everyone in this bed sit had some kind of substance misuse issue and mental health problems and it was an interesting place to live (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) sounds like a commune well, it was a common, but without the spiritual dimension right. to it. It was kind of like, a, it was a bit of a hellhole, really. Um, a couple of years later, I, I moved out of out of that place, and I went to a much nicer place where um, I met the father of my middle son. And after my son was born, we split up, and I went to university. So I moved 40 miles away from my family and friends, and I was doing a degree as a prime to be a primary school teacher. And when I got to a new university, forty miles away from anyone I knew, I suddenly felt really lonely. And I hadn't felt lonely um, for lack of company before. I'd been lonely because of the horrible void in my head, but I'd not felt lonely for lack of company. And by this point, I had friends. I had a, I'd had a good social life and good social um, support network. And now I was completely alone. So this was when my solo drinking started. And I remember, I actually remember quite clearly the first time I did it, I went to the shop to buy some food and I saw some bottles of wine for sale. And I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I can't drink with my friends, but if I buy a bottle of wine and drink it, it'll be as if they're with me. <laughs> and I honestly, I remember thinking that. And I, I really, and I think I might have, I mean, this was back in the very early days of mobile phones and one of them had a phone. And I'm pretty sure I sent her a text at some point that night to tell her that that was what I was doing. Um, which, you know, that's, I didn't really, it's only recently that that has come back to me. And I think, oh my God, <laughs> how can I have thought that was the same as having my friend in the same room with me? You know, I was sitting there talking to myself, basically pretending I had friends. And so for four years then I lived, I was quite lonely most of the time. I was doing a degree. I mean, this was ridiculous. I, I convinced myself that I couldn't actually write an essay unless I was stoned. Um, <laughs> and, I tried it once and I couldn't write, but 
I kept telling myself that I wasn't going to be able to do it. So, of course, I couldn't do it. So I wrote, I managed to get a good degree while being drunk and stoned most nights. So I, I often wonder what I could have achieved if I'd managed to stay straight. But, you know, that's a that's a pointless conversation to have with yourself. Ooh, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so when I, I, I did my degree and that was the one, I mean, it was four incredibly stressful years, as I'm sure you can imagine. I was a single mom. There was a really difficult separation from my ex and it was really difficult. And at the end of it, I had, I was really stressed. So I returned home to where I'd been when I met the the first group of friends and I returned home and most of them were still there. So I returned home to an existing social circle where getting drunk, getting stoned, taking drugs was completely accepted and actually encouraged as well. And I bonded, I really bonded with one, with well, quite a few of them, but one in particular I fell completely in love with. And after a couple of years of friendship, he was a real heavy drinker and we really we used to drink together and that was it we'd go to gigs together we'd we'd have adventures together but there was always drink there was always 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 drink and i thought i was completely in love with him but i can see now with hindsight that there was a that was an addiction he was a, he was definitely an addiction for me it wasn't love it was an addiction and i it, it took me a long time to realize that right I still like him. We're still friends, but I can see now that that I was it was another addictive behaviour in me, which has quite been been quite an interesting journey of discovery. Um, while I was friends with him, and and now I mean I'm a big music fan, and I was going to a lot of rock gigs, an awful lot of gigs, and meeting lots of people who were living a very rock and roll lifestyle. So again, I was making sure that my social circle always had alcohol at its right. core mm -hmm. whatever i did apart from when i went walking up mountains or went to yoga classes everything i did always had alcohol and mostly other drugs as well and you know it was drinking until dawn kind of drinking with a lot of them you know it was real hardcore this is and 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 I was convinced that this was all completely acceptable because when you surround yourself with it, that is all you see. So it seems okay, doesn't it? I once I, I with my um, this relationship, this friendship that I had with this man that I was completely it was completely unrequited love. We were really good friends, but he never wanted to be with me. And when I realised that that was never going to happen, I started to pull away a little bit and started going to a local pub instead, where I met the father of my youngest child. And um, we got together and very shortly, uh, we, we got together by getting very drunk together. He was the manager of the bar and I very quickly got myself a job there so I could be there. And, you know, it was all these ridiculous situations I set up just to make sure I could drink more. Wow. Um, and we ended up, I ended up getting pregnant very quickly after our relationship started. And after my son was born, the relationship got really weird and after about a year, I started to realize that actually I was in a fairly abusive relationship, that I was being squashed and crushed and my self-esteem was being whittled down even more than it had previously been. I was becoming incredibly depressed. 
I mean, I'd always been quite depressed anyway, but it was getting worse and worse. I was, and my behavior was becoming more and more erratic. And I started to suspect, but not want to talk about the fact that I may have bipolar disorder or something, something along those lines. Um, my ex, as he is now, would use that and my drinking as threats and reasons why I shouldn't be a mother. And it's, you know, it was very, very cruel. When we split up, things got very nasty with us. And coming now to my my sort of breaking point, really. So that, that relationship ended very, very acrimoniously. Um, he was still, he refused to leave. He was still living with me for nearly a year after we split up. And it was horrendous. And I was drinking every night because I just couldn't bear what my life had become at this point. It was, that was basically the only thing that was keeping me sane. So I thought, whereas nice. obviously it was exacerbating every single problem I had when my mental health problems, my relationship with him, everything was becoming worse as a result of my drinking. But it was the only way I'd ever known to cope with difficulties. Right. You know, I had never developed any other coping mechanisms. So when things go bad, I got drunk and that was all I knew. But um when he he left he left the he left our home and for a little while things calmed down a little bit. We had a very difficult, tense um, thing going on with contact with our son and I got a new job which I loved and I was quite happy I managed to give up smoking for a while not drinking but I managed to give up smoking and at the, at the end of 2012 I was really happy I was in a new relationship I was in a, with, with somebody that I'd been with in the past and who was one of my best friends and I love him dearly um, I was in a new job that I loved Things were calming down with my ex and things seemed to be, everything was quite calming down at home and everything seemed to be going well. And then I went back to work after Christmas. So at the beginning of 2013, I went back to work and we were told that there had been some um, fraudulent activity uncovered within the organization and that threw the organization into complete chaos and so the job and the, the atmosphere in the office changed. My job was incredibly insecure all of a sudden. Yeah. And there was an awful lot of tension there. People were really unhappy. I started smoking again. Right. Um, and my drinking then started to increase again because I was really stressed. I was frantically job hunting again uh, where I thought I was in a secure job for three years. Um and so that started to raise an awful lot of stress. And then, so 2013 was basically the year that life hammered me into submission. <laughs> um, <laughs> so while that was going on, we discovered that a very close family member had been hiding an addiction his, of his own for, well, since he was about 15. Uh, so for about 14 years, he'd been hiding this drinking problem. And we found out when he started trying to kill himself and going into complete meltdown. I mean, he oh. was, he was, he's, he's absolutely fine now. I mean, with hindsight, it all, it was all a bit of a, I think he'd hit his rock bottom and he didn't know what to do to tell anybody. So he took the um, cry for help route to get help. Um, but that was all very traumatic for me and my family and for me in particular because, of course, it shone a bright light onto me 
And it mirrored, it, it held up a really, really big mirror to me because I could suddenly see my own behavior. Right. Uh, I mean, I wasn't the one doing, making the suicide attempts, but I kind of started to wonder why I never try, you know, how come this is not me? Why is this not me? This should be me. I've been doing this for 20 years. Why is this not me? Um, So it really, really started to force me to confront the fact that I had the same problem. Um, although I wasn't ready to talk about it. So I was trying to be supportive to my family and trying to deal with this. Um, And while I was trying to deal with this, my mother told us that she'd been diagnosed with rectal cancer. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. Jesus. So initially, initially, I thought that, and and what we thought was that if it turned out to be that, then she wasn't going to have very long to live. So, I mean, I was... This this just floored me completely because me and my mum are really good friends and the thought of her suddenly dying on me was just, I mean, it just absolutely knocked me sideways. Um, she's fine again now. It's, you know, she, she she wasn't as ill as, as we feared and she's recovered perfectly. She, she's, I think she's actually got younger since then. Wow. She's far healthier and better than she was before. Miracle. Uh, well, yes, and I think a power of the um, positive thinking because she kind of decided, no, no, I'm not going to let this beat me, and she, she, she recovered. So, and she recovered really well as well, really quickly. So that was really good. But that was for about six to eight months while she was having treatment and everything, and you know there was there was a big weight on our mind as a family. And so, so that was going on and I changed jobs as well and went into a job that was, um, would have been, I would have loved it a year earlier, but I wasn't emotionally strong enough to deal with a very demanding job in a new organization that wasn't as close knit and supportive as I was used to. So at a time when I really needed support around me, I didn't have it, um, in the same way that I was used to. I'd always, I'd been used to working in small, close teams and it wasn't the same in this organization. So I felt completely out of my depth and really unhappy in my job. Um, and I was started, my, and my, my ex and I had started having a really savage fight over um, con- contact and custody and money and all the things that you argue about when you've separated with the father of your child. So, up until August 2013, it was as if life had decided, the universe had decided I needed to sort my life out. And if I wasn't <laughs> going to listen to the first warning, I was going to keep getting warnings until I paid attention. Yeah. So middle of August, I realized I was seven weeks into the job. Um, and I'd actually had a big realization that I was probably falling apart when I listened to uh, an album, I was listening to an album that I absolutely adored, um, the latest Queens of the Stone Age album. And I've been completely addicted to this album for months. And there's one song in particular that's called I Appear Missing. And if you Google that, go onto YouTube and look at that and watch the video, it's basically a, a zombie flying through um, like a, a deserted city. And at the end of the video, this zombie kind of character f- crashes to the ground, falls off this high building and is splattered. And it's and the words of it are all about how lost you can feel when your world is falling apart. And 
I hadn't been able to stop listening to this song. I was, I was completely, I mean, I was playing it and then playing it and then playing it and playing it. And at this one particular moment, I thought, fuck, <laughs> this song is me. <laughs> and it was, and it was <laughs> like, oh my God, no wonder I've been so, this song has got so under my skin because it's basically telling me where I am in my life. That that was exactly, that line I appear missing, that is exactly how I felt. I felt like I'd, gone somewhere and I didn't really know where and I hadn't realized until I said I sort of felt like I was outside of myself quite a lot um and it was when I was listening to this song that I suddenly realized that was the problem that I wasn't connecting with anything anymore that I the soul the 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 bit of me that is talking to you now had disappeared somewhere and there was just this shell this really unhappy shell that used to be me and it wasn't. It was. It was not long after that. I gave up my job, and I basically just surrendered. I said, "Right, okay, I need to have a nervous breakdown. Okay, let's do it." And so I, I gave up my job, and I was on income support, which is a, a government welfare benefit that you can get if you're a single mum of a child under five. So I knew that I had until my youngest son was five to be on income support, and then I needed to change my life. So this was the point when I decided to go into yoga teacher training because I'd been going to yoga for quite a long time and I loved it. But this is where it wasn't working for me. I thought it was working, but I was going to my yoga class and then going home and opening a bottle of wine and rolling a joint and drinking and smoking the rest of the night away. So it wasn't touching my mind. It was making my body feel great, Uh but it wasn't actually giving me what I needed mentally. So when I started this yoga teacher training, like I've already said, I thought I was going to learn how to teach yoga exercise class because that's all I thought yoga was. I had absolutely no idea that yoga is actually a system of of living. It's um it's a way of of being the very best person that you can be. I had no idea because it had never been that for me it had always just been an exercise class and so when I went into this class I went in full of arrogance and yeah I've been I've been doing yoga for years I really know yoga and then within about 10 (laughs) minutes thought I don't know anything (laughs) 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 have I even gone to a yoga class you know it was it was so far removed from what I thought I knew about yoga it was amazing and that realization that I knew nothing was just so wonderful because then I really threw myself into learning and within a very short space of time I could see that what I was going to learn was going to change my life I mean learning to breathe deeply learning to relax properly and and the, the mindset stuff that yoga teaches you I could see just from skimming through our course book that actually this is going to be really powerful and this is exactly what I need but I really didn't see coming that seven months into that, I was going to wake up one morning after one of the most fun nights I'd had in ages where I drank so much alcohol. It was ridiculous. I, I woke up feeling like I was going to die <laughs> because I couldn't see. I, for a little while, I questioned if I had died. <laughs> oh, couldn't see, could barely move, pounding, pounding headache. Like there were a million a million dwarves mining for gold inside my brain. (laughs) I love that analogy. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. Oh, man, it paints a picture beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) I got to remember that. It is good, isn't it? Um, (laughs) 
But yeah, so this morning I woke on this morning I woke up and I just thought this is this sucks. Why am I doing this? Yesterday when I woke up and I hadn't drank the night before, I felt great. Why do I keep doing this to myself? And what I realized at that point was that after this seven months, I, this was only seven months. This was like the the course was thirteen months, so seven months in, so just over halfway through the course. I realized that I didn't need to hide anymore. I didn't need to numb anymore. I didn't need that oblivion anymore because I had new coping mechanisms, uh, coping strategies. I knew how to breathe properly. I knew how to process my thoughts. I knew how to actually be with my thoughts and be with my pain and look at my past and look at things that had hurt me in the past with a with a forgiving eye rather than a blaming eye. And so I I mean I had done such a lot of work on looking at myself, looking at my past, dealing with releasing a lot of anger and a lot of tension, a lot of a lot of the things that I'd been dragging behind me since I was a child. All this blame and resentment and all this anger towards a lot of other people that I just didn't have anymore. So I didn't, I was, I was lying there with this hideous hammer, just thinking, this is stupid. I don't actually need this anymore. So I don't need to do this anymore. So, okay, I'm not going to do this again next weekend. And that was, well, that was as far as I got. I thought, I'm not going to do this next weekend. I'm going to have a sober weekend. Um, and I had a sober weekend and I really enjoyed it. So I thought, right, okay, that was good. Let's do another one next week and stay sober for a couple of weeks and just see how it goes. I I, I think I had an, an, an enough understanding of myself at this point to know that if I'd said, that's it, I'm never drinking again, the self-destructive tendencies would have kicked back in again and the addiction would have gone, whoa, 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 no, 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 we're not doing that. And I would have been drinking by Tuesday, whereas by telling myself I was only doing it a week at a time, I could, I because I always had that. And if you want to drink the next weekend, you can. You know, it was always that. Just don't do it this weekend. Right. You can do it next weekend if you want. And then, I don't know, after about six weeks, it was my brother's wedding. And there was going to be lots of wine available there. I could have, I could have quite happily got very drunk on my brother and his husband's bill. And I decided I wasn't going to drink that night because I wanted to enjoy the wedding. And that was so significant because I had a wonderful time. I didn't get tempted by the wine at any point during that night. And as we were driving home the next morning or the next afternoon, rather, I was in the car with my parents and my two sons and realized that if I got drunk, that journey would be it would have been horrible because I would have got very drunk. I'd have a hangover. I would have smoked. I would have been stinking of booze and fags. And I would have probably at some point annoyed at least one of my family members. <laughs> and as it was, I didn't have to worry about my mother being angry with me or my kids. Of, uh, I mean, you know, my my little one would have not been looked after properly and I think that that was the moment when I thought that's it I'm not doing this again I'm, and I, I, I started to actually look forward to a sober life rather than the idea of never being able to drink again filling me with fear um, so that was you know in, in the space of 
six weeks of when I thought I, I, I'm not going to do this now to I'm never going to do this again. That was quite um, quite a big leap for me because whenever I tried to impose rules like that on myself before, I'd failed at every hurdle. I, you know, the, the slightest thing that goes wrong, I'm like, right, I need to drink now. I need to. <laughs> and I could always justify it. But I didn't want to justify it anymore. I didn't need it anymore. And it's just been so since then. I mean, that was, well, two years ago, nearly now, since I since I drank. And since then, I've not had any moments when I've come close to thinking, oh, sod it, I'm just going to get drunk tonight. Um, the, the Back in May, when we had the referendum on leaving the EU, which I presume that you know about in, um, in America. Um, what is it? The we, you know we, we Britain voted to leave the European Union because we apparently went completely insane, um, but we voted to leave the European Union, and I think it's a terrible idea. And it, I got very upset on the. I was very upset the morning after you know, the, the day that we had the results. I was really upset, really stressed pacing up and down my room, my living room, crying, getting angry. I got arguing with complete strangers on Facebook about it. And I was feeling like the least yogic person in the world. And then I suddenly realized, well, do you know what? If this had happened two years ago, you'd be pissed by now. <laughs> and that's pissed as in the British. Yes, drunk. Drunk. I would have been really drunk. I would have been down at the shop by 11 o'clock. And I would have been drunk by lunchtime and I would have felt completely justified in doing so. So that moment I realized, you know, actually, I'm okay. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to have all these negative emotions because that's part of being human. But what I now know is that I can actually process those negative emotions without feeling that need to hide. I didn't want to leave my house that day. I didn't really want to face anybody. I didn't want to go out there and be wondering, did you vote for us to leave? Did you vote? Was it you? Was it you? Which I know I would have been doing. So I felt a need to hide physically, but I didn't need feel that need to hide in myself to hide from what I was feeling. So that was when I realized, so that was May this year. May this year, I realized that actually I feel like I'm okay now. And I, I don't feel like I, I mean, obviously we can't ever predict and I could, I might well years down the line or days down the line even at some point in my future, I might feel differently and I might end up relapsing because there's always that risk that somebody can relapse. But I think that what happened through my yoga teacher training and my practice since is I actually fundamentally changed. Yes. Um, I changed. Um, you know, yoga talks about um, the law of karma. Well, the law of karma says that, I mean, it, it, when you get into it really deeply, it's a bit like time travel and it's really, it can blow your mind and it has blown my mind and I'm not going to even try and give you a very clear explanation, but basically, because <laughs> um, it, it gets a bit like, I don't know if, if you know Doctor Who, where you are. But it's it's a time travel TV series, and it can get so complicated sometimes when you're looking at the different paradoxes of time travel. And that's what it feels like trying to explain karma sometimes. But <laughs> through making my decisions now, through, through my practice, I've changed not what actually happened in the past, but I've changed how it's affecting me now. And so I've changed my future as a result of that. And it's... Yes. 
you know, so so I've changed. And, and I mean, there's there's been a lot of research that says that certain yoga practices actually change the the way our brain works. It changes the neural pathways. It creates lots of new pathways in our minds. It changes our DNA. Even it, you know, yoga can be very healing on a physical level as well as on a mental level. So I know that I have changed on such a profound level that I feel. And I, I, you know, I, I'm very conscious that that is that is a, a very bold thing to say, but I feel okay <laughs> all the time. And I, I, I'm sure, you know, I hope that this podcast never gets played at me as a way of saying, "Look, see what happened." <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 a really good feeling. It's a really good place to be because I've never felt ever before that I've been able to be okay. So feeling okay and feeling good and actually feeling I like who I am now. And there are moments when I think, you know, I could be a lot better. <laughs> and, I, you know, if, if I wasn't feeling that, then I wouldn't be growing. So I'm glad that I feel like I can improve. But I like who I am and I'm happy in my own company. I don't have those horrible negative thoughts that used to drive me completely crazy and send me to, to the nearest wine bottle. So, yeah, um, yeah, I think that's my story. I'm sure there's lots more, but I think I've been talking for ages now. So I don't... It's an amazing story. You tell it so well, and there's so many aspects of it that our listeners can relate to, that I can relate to. Uh, trying to even explain what you were trying to explain right now as far as that time travel or the, the change in neural <laughs> pathways, it's difficult for anybody, for, for most people to grasp Unless you're kind of in that acceptance, in that acceptance mode, because for me, recovery has taught me about being open-minded, okay? So honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. So there are things that come into our existence. There's things that come into our reality that change the way we look at things. And so we have these, these yeah. moments where there's a shift that happens and it completely changes the course of our lives. Yeah, this is for yeah. us. It's easy to it's it's easy for us to identify that because we think about how horrible our lives have been for so many years with all the drinking and all the using and all the bad friends and all the bad decisions and then the bad marriages and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Then something happens, and what I call a spiritual awakening or that that moment of clarity where all of a sudden you realize, I need to go in an entirely different direction. And it happens almost overnight. And it, and it happened for you. And trying to explain that is really tough. So I get yes. that. Yes. <laughs> 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 there are so many factors to it, aren't there? I mean, it's so seldom just... I mean, some people do have that. Oh, well, I got... I got arrested or I had a, I crashed my car when I was drunk. And there, for some people, there are those one moment when they think, okay, I need to change now. But for a lot of people, it is that gradual realization that things aren't right. And it might not be one key moment, but it's, it's that build up to realizing. Yeah. But I, I totally get it. And there's, you either get it or you don't get it. Right. And so, mm -hmm. and there, and, and people talk about it in the Facebook group too. There's that, that how do I how do I understand or or when am I going to have my spiritual awakening or you know I've never gotten that you know so it's it's a matter of you know bring the body the mind will follow you know do the yes. next right thing uh, you have to act your way into better thinking you can't think your way into better acting it's yes. all these 
cliches and all these mindsets, but it's a, you know, there's a series of events that happen first. You may have that moment of clarity where you decide to make a drastic change in your life, but there has been years of of decision making, bad decision making that led to it. It wasn't just like like you said, like, oh, um, yeah, you know, this didn't work out too well last night. I think I'm going to change my life. No, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's more like this undeniable, <laughs> this undeniable list of wreckage <laughs> that yeah. is impossible to deny. We forget our resolve very quickly until we've done the work. Yes. And, uh, you need to do the work before you can before you can actually walk away from it that easily. Well, let's talk about the work. Let's talk about from from that moment where you started to make that shift and make that change and you started to connect to something different. Um, you started the, the blog and you also wrote the book. So tell us what came first, what inspired you, you know, give us, give us the history on the, the blog and the book. Well, when I first started, I mean, I, I, like I said, I went into yoga teacher training as a way of, 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 of trying to, um, have a different career. Really. I was looking at it as a career choice. And so when I started teaching, I was just going to teach, I was just going to teach general yoga classes at first. And then I thought I would focus on workplace stress because I thought that's a good one. There's lots of money in that was, was what I thought really. Um, And then I was talking to a friend of mine and I was talking about my recovery and we were talking about what I wanted to do with my business and she pointed out and I hadn't realized that actually I got most animated and most compelling and most alive when I was talking about my recovery and how yoga had helped me and how I wanted to stand up on a big tall tower and shout to the wall that this can save you and I was you know and and she said I think this is where you need to go I think this is what your focus needs to be and at first I just thought no I am not gonna spend my life talking about how I used to be a bloody drunk Amazing. (laughs) and then I thought actually do you know what that would be really good for me I think to talk about it and um, in the UK we have um, there's a a mental health awareness day and it's a there's a twitter hashtag called time to talk and so on this one day i saw a facebook post from the family member that i talked about earlier on who'd had the battle with alcoholism and he'd written a post about his recovery and I saw that and I thought, wow, that's really brave of him. I wonder if I could be as brave as that. And I thought, I'm going to write a blog post about it. And so I did. And it took me ages to write. And it felt so good to write it. I, I mean, I, I, I cleared a lot of my fears around pe- letting people know my stuff in that. And I thought, I can write about this. And it, it got good responses as well. And people who read, you know, I had a bit of oh, I really get what you're talking about there. You know, people could relate to what I was talking about. So I started writing more. And I decided that I was going to try and work with um, addiction support charities in the local area to try and teach yoga there. So I started talking to them. At the same time, the idea of the book started creeping into my head because I'd wanted to write a book since I was a little girl. I've always loved books and I'd always wanted to write one. And I started thinking about the book and 
I had I went through lots of ideas about what I wanted the book to be. I went to a conference last year sometime about the about 12 step recovery programs which I have absolutely no personal experience of because I've never been to a meeting in my life. But and and I'd always thought like many people do that it was all about God and that as I couldn't talk to God apart from the few times when I've shouted at him and told him all kinds of things that you wouldn't really expect somebody to tell God. Um, <laughs> I thought AA or anything like that wasn't for me. And then I went to this conference and, and I wrote page after page after page after page of notes because I realized the crossover between 12-step recovery and yoga because it's, it's again, it's all about helping you to become that better person, to live to your fullest potential, to be a good person, the self-study, the making amends, the, you know, there, there's an awful lot of crossover there. So then I thought maybe I would write a book about that but and, and maybe I will one day because I think that there's something there's definitely something I could do with that but I didn't find that easy to write I, 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 I struggled I wrote quite a lot towards that but I didn't find it easy because obviously I don't know personally anything about 12-step recovery right so um, that didn't really happen and a lot of what I did write during that time has made it into my new book then I decided that what I really wanted to do was to look at what had happened to me and what happens in the brain, you know, with the neuroscience, the psychology of what happened or how it worked. I became completely fascinated with neuroscience and psychology and trying to work out what had actually changed in me. And then I, I was, so I started researching that. I was reading scientific papers and, and oh, trying to understand neuroscience and the neuroscience of addiction and lots of stuff. And then I realized that actually what I was trying to write there was a PhD. And then maybe, <laughs> maybe I wasn't going to be able to do that on my own. So maybe I needed to think of something a little bit simpler. <laughs> and then what actually happened that actually got me writing the book was quite amazing. It was, it was just the most insane thing that I was invited to speak at a conference in India. Uh, the Women Economic Forum in wow. Delhi. Wow. And yeah, it was great. It was when I first got the email, I thought it was spam because I thought, why is somebody writing to me and asking me to go and speak? <laughs> it was one of those, this is too good to be true things. Right. It must be spam. But um, I did finally realize that it was it was genuine and I, I managed to crowdfund my airfare to get there, which was very exciting. And I connected with one of the women who was speaking on the same panel as me. We were speaking about addiction. And I connected with her, a lady called Pat Duckworth, and she was telling me that she was she'd written a book and that she was going to do a sort of mini launch of it at the conference. And I said, oh, I wish I had my book ready to launch at the conference. And so we talked about how much I'd written and what I was writing about. Um, because by this point, what I decided I was going to write was just a sort of beginner's guide to yoga through the medium of my story. And that was what I was writing. And she said, well, we've got about four, however, I think it was four weeks. She said, you've got a few weeks. Couldn't you get it done? <laughs> oh, my God. I think I had about 18,000 words written at this point. So, I mean, I, you know, it's like, yeah, all right, I can do sure. that. Sure. <laughs> oh, wow. Bold. So I spoke to an editor friend of mine. I said, look, I've been given this challenge. Can you help me? Can you help me with the editing? If I can get it written, can you edit it for me? How long do you need? So how long have I got? And we worked out that I had a week. 
So when I went back and looked at what I'd written, I realized that most of what I'd written was actually for my eyes only. Um, it was, you know, a lot of stuff. If I published what I'd written in that first draft, people I love probably would be quite upset with me because there was a lot of kind of getting my emotions out, writing about stuff that I needed to process. I didn't need to publish. So I basically had to scrap most of those 18,000 words and write this book in a week but fortunately I disconnected I, I deactivated my Facebook account I'd given myself a month off from Facebook and so I just sat and I wrote 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 and I, one afternoon I had a little bit of a meltdown midway through the week and I emailed my editor friend and I said I can't do it I can't do it I can't do it and she told me to just send her what I'd already done so she could have a look over it and go for a walk and just relax a little bit and have a nap. So I did. I went up the mountain. I had a little snooze in the sun on the mountain and I just calmed down. And then I came back and she told me that what she'd read so far was really good and that she'd enjoyed reading it. And that kind of empowered me then and and reinvigorated me that I could do it so I did I managed to get the book written in a week and it's been edited a bit more since then because I realized that you know a week to write a book isn't really the best way to get the best work that you would publish perhaps so it's been redone a little bit now um, ready for launch on Wednesday on the 12th of October um, but yeah it's been an amazing I mean that was that was a real lesson to me and what I'm actually capable of when I put my mind to it so to you know to go from 18,000 words of unpublishable rhetoric stream of consciousness <laughs> and yeah <laughs> to actually a book that people have read and have, have said amazing things about you know i've had some really beautiful reviews on amazon um that have really made me i mean it's, it's kind of been like oh my god are they talking about the same book are they <laughs> actually talking about my book using <laughs> words like that wow i'm really i'm a good writer that's new <laughs> I didn't realize. So it's been amazing. I mean, it's it's been such a fantastic experience that I, I kind of already am thinking about the follow-up book, which is going to be a, um, almost like a, a, a course, a pra more practical step, um, a more practical workbook for people to go through um, nice. to accompany that book. So that's, my, that's going to be my project for sometime next year. Beautiful. But yeah, it's very exciting stuff. <laughs> All right, so Esther, so here's what we're going to do. Here's how I like to close up. I'm going to ask you a few questions about your early recovery, and I uh -huh. want you to respond with some inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Okay. All right, so the first question is, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? When I first, tr well, I'm, like I said, I, I, I kind of became clean accidentally really but before when I when I tried in the past I had tried before to sort of control my drinking to even though I was in complete denial that I had a drink problem I had tried on several occasions to control it so you know on some level I totally knew I had a drink problem but what got me whatever Whenever I tried to control my behavior before I'd always just managed to completely get in my own way and um I would justify, I could always find a way to justify drinking. So if I decided in the morning I'm not going to drink today, 
by lunchtime, I could have probably found a reason to be stressed or a reason to, I could have had an argument with somebody. I could have fabricated a reason. I could always create some sort of reason why I needed to have that excuse to drink. Um, I know now that I created those situations because now that I don't drink, they don't happen anymore. So I, I am pretty sure that I went look. I went looking for reasons. So maybe I wasn't actively creating them. I was certainly going looking for them. So if if what I would suggest to people who are new in in recovery is start doing a gratitude practice. So they're always looking for something good rather than looking for something bad. So try and you know, if I was went now, I'm I'm I keep a gratitude practice. I make sure I, I'm grateful. I'm living in gratitude a lot more than I ever used to before. And so these these situations that used to stress me out so much don't arise because I don't notice things that previously would have really, really wound me up, you know, like other people's driving, for example. Somebody right. could cut me up on a roundabout in the morning and I'd be using that as justification for getting wine in the evening. <laughs> Whereas now somebody cuts me up in the, you know, and I just think, oh, well, you obviously need to be there more than I do right fine (laughs) (laughs) beautiful beautiful all right and so tell us at what point did you have what I call a spiritual awakening that aha moment when you realized for the first time that you were truly powerless over drugs and alcohol but for the first time had developed the hope that you could stay sober that moment that I talked about with the Queens of the Stone Age song. That was my moment when I realized that I was powerless. Um, that that was quite a profound moment for me. Um, it really was. I, I remember crying quite a lot after it. I realized that I was not just powerless over alcohol. I realized that I was powerless over anything I, I I felt like I I realized at that point that I actually had no power over anything that there was nothing that I could do other than keep drinking at that point because I didn't know what else to do to cope with it um the time when I realized that I was gonna that, that gave me hope was different they were two separate things because for me my higher power is my connection. My yoga talks about our own personal responsibility. And so for me, that moment when I realized, because we were talking about um, connection to the higher self, so, but it's developing your own inner self so that you can connect to the higher self. And so I realized, I remember being in my yoga course one day and I can't remember what was what had been said, but my teacher or somebody in the room had obviously said something about personal responsibility and about we have the resources that we need within us. And that is, I mean, that, I know that is a very different um, message than what, 12 steps gives is that I know that their message is that you need that higher power outside of yourself. But what yoga taught me was that actually I've got it in me. Yes. And that was the first time I'd ever, ever realized that actually if I want my life to be a certain way, because I don't have that connection to any God figure, the only person that is ever going to make my life be what I want it to be is me. And I remember sitting in this class feeling like a big light had just gone on 
in my head. And I remember thinking, that's it, isn't it? That's it. This is all down to me. And I can do it. And I remember thinking that and realizing that actually I can actually do anything I want. I can carry on drinking all my life away if I want to. That's my choice. Mm-hmm. Or I can now take what I've learned and what I'm going to continue to learn and use that to make my life be what I want it to be. Beautiful. And that was that was an amazing moment for me. I wish I could remember what had happened before it. I wish I could remember what had been said before because I can only remember that light bulb going on in my head. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That's a beautiful uh, that's a beautiful image and a story to hold on to. You know, when mm. you think about those those final days, but it's so clear. It's so clear to have that in your mind, that moment where you knew that something spectacular had to change and it wasn't yes. anything it wasn't it wasn't anything small and it wasn't anything subtle it was just almost this overwhelming need to act so yes. beautiful yes. i love it yeah. i love it yeah. all right thank you so number 3 uh, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to our newcomers that you read in early recovery um Apart from my own book, which I would recommend <laughs> to please, um, yes, bent back into shape was actually written um, with people in early recovery in mind. Um, but as well, I read, um, I did a, I, I ran a thirty day gratitude challenge when I was this. So I think this was about when I was about six months sober, maybe not even that much. But I ran a 30-day gratitude challenge um, on Facebook. And I decided that one of the things we should do was have a book for the month. And I read Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Albom. I don't know if you've read that. No. Um, It's not about recovery. It's not about addiction. What it's about is about living and about life. And it's Oh, it's beautiful. It's such a beautiful book. I, I think that all chill teenagers should read it because I think that if teenagers could read this book, when you think you're young and you're going to live forever, to read this, it's, it's about um, the last few months of a, of a very brilliant man's life and about the wisdom that he imparted to one of his students when he knew he was dying. And he was a very brilliant man. And there are videos. He's a, it's a real, it's it's based on, a, it's a real man. It's it's a real account of what happened in the last few months of this man's life. And the, the wisdom that he imparts about what he's learned about life, about how to waste life, about how to live life, about gratitude, about love, about relationships, about work, about everything. I mean, it could have been a yoga textbook. It could be a recovery handbook. It's beautiful. Um, the last chapter, because, you know, you, you know on the first page, this, this, is, this is the account of the last few months of this man's life. So I'm not giving away any spoilers when I talk about the last chapter, which talks about his death and his funeral. I cried so hard that my face, every muscle in my face actually hurt from oh. the crying. But it was... You know when you cry and it's sad, but at the same time it's so profoundly beautiful that you know that something has touched you really deeply? I was crying. I was really crying, really sobbing with a smile on my face. It was so beautiful. I mean, the the writer, Mitch Albom, is is an incredible writer. And he tells a story so beautifully. He's got a lovely, very simple, very, very readable. I, I read most of this book in the bath 
um, in one session. I read most of it in one go. It's such an incredible book and it really gives you hope and it also gives you such a lot of insight into what people who have lived their lives learn about life, you know, and it does give you some real, really profound insights into life. And for a gratitude challenge, which I was running, it was perfect. It was an absolute perfect book. And I think for somebody in recovery, I think it's such an uplifting book that that's what you, you know, you want, you need all the, the theoretical stuff. You need all the inspirational recovery books. But I think then you also need something that can inspire you about how you're going to live your life once, you know, once you're free. And I think that this book is is just so profoundly inspirational. And I think that it's it's wonderful. I recommend it to everybody. Beautiful. It's going to be on the show notes listed alongside of Esther's book. So make sure to check out the show notes. All right, so number four. Esther, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? In terms of recovery, um, when when I was, I think it was probably in the first class of the teacher training course, my teacher told us that um, Swami Gitananda, who's the, 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 the guru that, whose teachings she follows and she teaches, he had three rules for life. Don't judge don't compare and don't beat yourself up. And I talk about this at every opportunity I get because I think that they're very, they're, they're amazing rules for life, but they're also a fantastic little motto to carry with you through recovery. Because when we're in, I mean, when we're in addiction and when we're in recovery, we can be so judgmental of ourselves. We're so, we're so cruel to ourselves and to others as well, but particularly to ourselves. So don't judge yourself harshly. Don't ju- you know? Just just accept what happened and what you are now, and don't judge yourself for that. You just are where you are, and that's okay because there's keep looking forward. So don't judge. Don't beat yourself up. You know, never. We should never beat ourselves up. Just learn, learn your lesson, move on, let it go, and don't compare. So if somebody's doing everybody we are all we're all on our different paths in life so comparing your life and your recovery to my life and my recovery is like comparing a pound of tomatoes with a cabbage you know they're not the same things at all so (laughs) don't compare because you either compare yourself and think I'm worse than that person or you compare yourself and think I'm better than that person and neither of those judgments are helpful to anybody so you just accept who you are and accept who other people are and just know that your life is yours and keep moving forward and just let it all go. Beautiful, beautiful, beautifully said. I love it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Great suggestion, Esther. All right. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us today, Esther. What an amazing story. Well, thank you. Always been lovely to talk to you. All right. So, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. 
We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.